Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Good evening. The man who gave a million dollars to President Trump's inaugural and was then awarded by being named ambassador to the European Union has just blown a large hole in President Donald J. Trump's cover story. Gordon Sunland's impeachment testimony was released today, but it turns out he'd revised his previous testimony. Apparently, his faulty memory was suddenly restored after details of other witness testimony made clear that Sunland's original story didn't quite add up. Sunland now says, yes, there was a quid pro quo, and he was the guy who was trying to deliver it for the president. A scheme, he testified, got more insidious, his word, over time, involving activities he said would be improper, and though he said he's not a lawyer, assumed could be illegal. Sunland now admits that he knew the bottom line. His testimony indicates his Ukrainian counterparts knew it as well and knew the demands were coming from President Trump. In short, no U.S. military aid until Ukraine publicly did the president two political favors. And if that were the sum total of what Sunland, the ambassador of the European Union, told House investigators, that would be plenty. But it wasn't. His testimony and that of Kurt Volker, the president's former special Ukraine envoy, also lays out some of the mechanics of this thinly veiled shakedown masquerading as foreign policy. It puts one man in the middle of it all, Rudy Giuliani, the president's private attorney, not elected to anything, not confirmed by anyone, acting on no one's behalf, but the president's and possibly his own, given his interest in doing bigger business in Ukraine. Giuliani emerges as the central figure here in what was, according to the testimony, exactly what the president and his defenders have been saying it was not. No quid pro quo. 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 Well, that, as you know, was a pillar of the president's defense, even before we saw the rough transcript of his July 25th call with Ukraine's President Zelensky. In it, you'll remember Zelensky asked for the aid. He says, quote, I would also like to thank you for your great support in the area of defense. We are ready to continue to cooperate for the next steps. Specifically, we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense defense purposes. To which the president immediately replies, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows a lot about it. He then asks Zelensky to investigate a conspiracy theory about Ukraine being behind the hack of the DNC, not Russia. Mr. Trump also wants help with what he calls the other thing. Which, he, which is really all about Joe Biden and his son and investigating them. So this is what he says on the so-called transcript. The president wants everyone to read, allegedly, and it already seems explicit enough. But now here's what Sondland says in his revised testimony, referring to a conversation on the 1st of September with the top advisor to President Zelensky. Quoting from Sondland, I now recall speaking individually with Mr. Yermak, where I said the resumption of U.S. aid would likely not occur until Ukraine provided the public anti-corruption statement that we had been discussing for many weeks. Now, you might look at that and say, well, corruption, of course, that's all the president has ever been interested in. He wants to clean up corruption in Ukraine. That's been the White House main line of defense. The conversation I had was largely congratulatory, was largely corruption, all of the corruption taking place. 
Like, look, this is a corrupt place. I don't want to send them a bunch of money and have them waste it, have them spend it, have them use it to line their own pockets. It was about helping the Ukrainians to uh, get graft out and corruption outside of their government. Corruption is incredible in Ukraine, which bothered me a lot. But keeping them honest, I mean, let's be real. There has never been any evidence of the president being interested at all in fighting corruption anywhere until this story came to light. And as Ambassador Sondland said in his opening statement, the only so-called corruption the president was concerned with just happened to involve the president attempting to absolve Russia of responsibility for the DNC hack and digging up dirt against the Bidens, his main political rival. Sunland describes talking about it with Rudy Giuliani starting in August. Quoting now from Sunland, in these short conversations, Mr. Giuliani emphasized that the president wanted a public statement from President Zelensky committing Ukraine to look into anti-corruption issues. Mr. Giuliani specifically mentioned the 2016 election, including the DNC server and Burisma as two anti-corruption investigatory topics of importance for the president. So the message was corruption, meaning the Bidens and 2016. And as this was unfolding, aid that had been approved last year by Congress was still not flowing to Ukraine. Remember, too, that on the July 25th call, the Ukrainians had already been in touch with Giuliani, and the president was asking Zelensky to talk with him directly. Giuliani is clearly the heart of this Ukraine adventure, but now it seems Secretary of State Mike Pompeo also has some explaining to do. Thanks to Gordon Sunland's testimony, we now know that Secretary Pompeo knew full well Giuliani was up to something. Question, did you ever discuss Rudy Giuliani with Secretary Pompeo? Sunland, only in general terms. Question, and what did you discuss? Sunland, that he's involved in affairs, and and Pompeo rolled his eyes and said, yes, it's something we have to deal with. And as Kurt Volker explains, the Ukrainians knew that as well. In his testimony, he refers back to May and what he saw as a negative narrative forming in the president's mind about Ukraine. Quoting from Volker now, after sharing my concerns with Ukrainian leadership, an advisor of President Zelensky asked me to connect him to the president's personal lawyer, Mayor Rudy Giuliani. I did so. I did so solely because I understood that the new Ukrainian leadership wanted to convince those like Mayor Giuliani, who believe such a negative narrative about Ukraine, that times have changed and that under President Zelensky, Ukraine is worthy of U.S. support. Volker goes on to say that he made it clear to the Ukrainians that Giuliani does not represent the U.S. government. Now, Volker was right about that. Technically, Giuliani wasn't representing America. He was representing Donald J. Trump possibly his own business interests. Giuliani was essentially the bagman. He had the money, or at least access to the money, through the president. Ukraine desperately needed that money, and it was clear to the Ukrainians what they were expected to do to get it. That's the quid pro quo. The quid pro quo that diplomat William Taylor had heard Gordon Sunland conveyed to a top Ukrainian official, which Sunland now admits, yeah, he did in his revised testimony. NSC staffer Alexander Vindman also testified that Sunland mentioned a quid pro quo, saying, quote, Ambassador Sunland started to speak about Ukraine delivering specific investigations to secure the meeting with the president, at which time uh, Bolton, the national security advisor, cut the meeting short. So we're awaiting transcripts of their testimony. Meantime, one leading Republican senator who once claimed he was open to new evidence now says he's heard enough and doesn't want to read anything. Listen to Lindsey Graham just last month. Are you open-minded if more comes out that you could support impeachment? Sure. I mean, I mean, I, show me something that 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 is a crime. If you could show me that, you know, Trump actually was engaging in a quid pro quo outside the phone call, that would be very disturbing. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's pretty clear because now that all this testimony shows that. Well, today, Lindsey Graham says he will not be reading any of these transcripts, telling reporters, quote, I've written the whole process off. A lot to cover, starting with one of the lawmakers who's been hearing all this testimony, Democratic Congressman Jerry Connolly of Virginia. I spoke to him just before airtime. Congressman, the, the big revision in Sondland's testimony, does it does it strengthen your case, do you think, the fact that he suddenly remembers there was a quid pro quo? You know, I, th- I think uh, the revision by Ambassador Sondland is very significant. Uh, first of all, it dawned on him that he could uh, find that his testimony previously could be construed as lying to Congress under oath, which is a crime. Uh, and so he hastened to correct it after he saw the other transcripts contradicting him. Uh, but more importantly, I think, for the president's defense and his acolytes, his supporters in Congress, is that his defense, in case anyone hasn't noticed, is now on the floor. It's crumbled because Ambassador Sunland explicitly admitted in his corrective testimony today that a quid pro quo most certainly did occur and that he, Ambassador Sunland, was propounding it. He didn't directly connect the quid pro quo to President Trump, though. Does that provide the president some cover here? I don't think so. Uh, we have uh, we have the president's own words in the transcript of the phone conversation of July 25th with the new president of Ukraine. And we have uh, lots of other testimony corroborating that it was the will of the president and it was directly coming from him that uh, these so-called investigations, meaning get dirt on Joe Biden, uh, had to be insisted upon in return for the release of military aid and the promise of a presidential visit between the two presidents. Do you believe that he just forgot this stuff that I mean, of all the you know, I'm sure he has a lot of important things on his plate, um, but this would seem a pretty major thing to have just kind of forgotten. Yeah, I, I think that's highly unlikely. Remember that the whole defense Uh, rested on the assertion there was no quid pro quo. And all of Trump's Republican acolytes who uh, attend these sessions went out and had a press conference after depositions saying, see, uh, we heard from Ambassador Sondland and uh, there was no quid pro quo. Well, now there is a quid pro quo, according to Ambassador Sondland. So now what do you do? How do you take back those words? How do you take back that insistence? And so uh, they seem to now be doing what's quickly becoming known as the full Mulvaney. Okay, there was a quid pro quo. So what? Get over it. Uh, That's quite an abrupt change in course and direction, but it's probably the last defense they've got for indefensible action. One of the big players, obviously, in all this is Secretary of State Pompeo. Um, I think just yesterday you called him a coward. You said he's, quote, disqualified himself from continuing to serve as the Secretary of State. What specifically do you believe that Pompeo has done that should disqualify him from holding his position. Remember that as the Secretary of State, you are charged with helping to develop and execute American foreign policy. But you're also charged with the duty of fostering, nourishing, growing, protecting the foreign service of the United States. The men and women who are charged uh, uh, in embassies and consulates all over the world who put themselves in danger on occasion. Uh, And uh, your job is to protect those people, defend those people uh, as the agency head, not to turn your head away from an active campaign of slander uh, to essentially force Ambassador Yovanovitch out of her job. 
And uh, Pompeo turned the other way, pretending he didn't know anything. He didn't act on any of the concerns that were brought to his attention. Uh, and uh, an honorable public servant, Ambassador Yovanovitch, had a reputation damaged and a personal security put at risk in Ukraine. But, and that's dishonorable and that's cowardly. Doesn't it seem, though, that uh, that Secretary of State Pompeo essentially sees himself as, you know, and wants to be in the inner circle of President Trump and that's who he sees his, uh, you know, his paymaster is, as opposed to, you know, the rank and file of the State Department or, uh, you know, the, the American people. It seems like this is part of the, um, you know, paying fealty to the president. Well, uh, you and I both know, Anderson, that there's a lot more to the job than that. He takes an oath uh, and that oath isn't uh, to the president of the United States. It's to the Constitution of the United States. And uh, he has a broader set of responsibilities than to one individual. Uh, we have lots of examples going into American history in the past where honorable men and women have served the secretary of state and have been willing to take on the president when they thought he was wrong. Uh, I can think of George Shultz during the Reagan years. Uh, Cy Vance resigned during the Carter years when he disagreed with the policy. He thought that was the honorable thing to do. Where is the honor here? Congressman Connolly, I appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure, Anderson. Thank you. More perspective now. Joining CNN Chief Political Correspondent Dana Bash, CNN Chief Legal Analyst Jeffrey Tubin, and CNN Senior Political Commentator David Axelrod, host of The Axe Files and former senior advisor to President Obama. Um, so, Jeff, there was now a quid pro quo. So remember, suddenly, Ambassador Sondland, this is a big deal. I mean, Connolly certainly thinks it is. Do you think so? It's a very big deal. I mean, because he was in the middle of this foreign policy. I mean, he was... Uh, the point person uh, th that was established very on and very early on in this process, and the fact that he now acknowledges it, is I think close to conclusive evidence of, of what happened here. You know, the issue of his changing testimony. A lot of people have been raising the specter: was he is he going to commit? Did he commit a crime? Does he get out of committing a crime by changing his testimony? The short answer is. No, no prosecutor is going to bring a case when someone voluntarily comes forward and uh, corrects the record. So I, I don't think he's in legal trouble. Um, he's probably going to be very unpopular in the White House in the future. David? You know, uh, one of the interesting things about it, it seems like this has been going on for years, but it's been just weeks ago that people sat here and on your show and other places uh, defending the president, saying, well, it couldn't be a quid pro quo if the Ukrainians didn't know. Right. That, uh, that this aid was being withheld for that reason. Now we have someone who's attesting to the fact that he delivered the message to an aid to the president of Ukraine. So the Ukrainians very well knew uh, that that was what was at stake, and, I mean, and they knew what was being asked. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and even based on, you know, New York Times reporting, uh, you know, there, and others, the Washington Post and others, I mean, they knew going back to the prior regime in, in Ukraine. Giuliani was operating there as far back as last February. Yeah, absolutely. And and what David uh, Axelrod just said is is so key because it does uh, take away the argument on the timeline and on, well, even the Ukrainians didn't complain about it. But the other thing it does is, as far as we know, it takes away any witness so far who was given a deposition that says anything other than the fact that there was a quid pro quo. It's it's unanimous. Right. And, and also, I mean, uh, Jeff, Sunland is not a, you know, a deep state actor. I mean, for all those who have that conspiracy theory, who believe that there is this deep state working against the president. 
I mean, he's the guy who gave a million dollars to the inaugural. The, the first thing you said on, right. the, on the program tonight was that you know, the whole reason he's there is not because he's an expert in uh, Central, Ameri- Central European politics. He's there as ambassadors are frequently are. They are they are rewards to big campaign contributors. He gave a million dollars, which even today is a substantial amount of money for a political campaign. He gave a, a million dollars to the inaugural. So, I mean, he, he's a lifelong Republican. Mm-hmm. He's in the Pacific Northwest. He's from Portland. And his hotels are in, in Seattle. He, he's been sort of in a beleaguered minority in a very democratic part of the country. And he was rewarded. The idea that you could call him a, a member of the deep state but or a never Trumper is just a, absurd. More of a shallow uh, swamp character than <laughs> yeah. a deep state but one, character. One thing that I, that I wonder, and maybe Jeffrey, uh, uh, you know, having been a prosecutor, can answer this, is whether or not he is going to be. He's, it's hard to imagine he won't be. Uh, invited or asked to come as part of the public testimony and whether or not he will then be uh, a credible witness if Republicans are going to point out the fact that his story's changed and if that will hurt the Democrats case. I have a, I have a oh, question. Sure, sure. I have a question okay. that that wasn't clear to me from the coverage today or his corrected testimony. Who exactly told him that this aid was dependent on mm-hmm. was it Rudy Giuliani to the president himself? Uh, so, uh, uh, so, you know, th- I think that question has to be. Yeah, I mean, he did not tie it directly to to President Trump. No. And I think that's going to be one line of defense that all these people who have testified, um, with the exception of the people who are actually on the call with Zelensky, did they didn't have much contact with Trump himself. So so one of the lines of defense will be this is all hearsay. We don't have anyone saying Trump wanted a quid pro quo. This is why John Bolton's testimony is so important. And we'll see whether it happens because he was someone who had I mean, direct they've been, contact. They've been arguing hearsay, though, from the, the time the whistleblower came it's forward true. and all that collapsed as more people confirmed what, you know, the whistleblower first said. We're going to pick this up and back in a minute. But there's some breaking election news, a potential upset in Kentucky's race for governor, a key test for the president. Seeing as John King joins us now with that. Uh, John, what's going on? The Democrat is leading in the race right now, Anderson. That's what's going on. We're up to 87% of the vote. You think of Kentucky as a ruby red state. The president was just there last night. Matt Bevin is the incumbent Republican governor seeking a second term. At the moment, he's trailing. Andy Beshear is the state attorney general. He's the son of a former Democratic governor. So yes, there's a Trump factor here, but there's also some local politics at play. Polarizing Republican governor, a Democratic attorney general whose family has a history in the state. And at the moment, 50% for Democrat Andy Beshear just shy of 48% for the Republican governor. We're up to 87%. So what are we looking for right now? Number one, Andy Beshear's victory, is his lead, I mean, he was behind early on. His lead comes from here, Louisville and the suburbs. Remember the suburbs part. Urban turnout, good for Democrats. The suburban turnout as well. He's running at 66% here to 32%, more than two to one in the largest population center of the state. That's a big number. I just want to go back in time for you here. The Democrat carried this last time but not by this margin. So you're seeing not only in the urban area, but in the suburbs of Louisville as well, Andy Beshear overperforming the last Democratic nominee. And another reminder, the suburbs have been very difficult for Republicans in the age of Trump. One more reminder of that. You come up here. This is the Covington area, Campbell County, Cincinnati, Ohio. These are suburbs of Cincinnati right here in the state. Andy Beshear, the Democrat, 100 percent is in here. He's 53 to 45 if you go back to the last, last governor's race, it was Matt Bevin who won with 54% of the vote here. This is a textbook case. We saw this in 2018. Suburbs that used to be rock-solid Republican moving away from the Republican Party. You're seeing it in Kentucky tonight. Let's come back again. 
to tonight's vote as we watch it come in. So what are we waiting for? Uh, one thing, if you're the Republicans and you're asking, can we come back? You're glad they're at 100 percent counted here in Fayette County. This is Lexington, a Democratic area in the city. But again, suburbs here. And again, I just want to go back in time. Look at that 65 percent. The governor's race last time, only 54 percent for the Democratic candidate. So Andy Bashir well overperforming the Democrat from four years ago. The question now, Anderson, is with 88 percent reporting, what's out and missing? You see these counties that are gray. Not, but the issue in these counties is, yes, they will most likely come in red. Not a lot of people, though, if you look at the vote four years ago. So if you're doing the math now in both campaign headquarters, you know, the Democrats thinking, can we pull off this upset? You're trying to do some math. How many votes possible out there and how many still to count right here? All right, John, thanks very much. We could be close to a call there. Uh, we're also going to be looking at the race in, uh, in Mississippi as well as uh, races in, uh, in Virginia. Uh, coming up next, more on the Ukraine story, Rudy Giuliani's role as well. What happens to all the witnesses this week who have refused to testify? Will anything happen to them? That's ahead. Ambassador Gordon Sunland says he understood as far back as late May that if Ukraine's president wanted a meeting with the president, he needed to make a public anti-corruption statement. That's what they were officially calling it. The demand, Sunland told House investigators, had been communicated by Rudy Giuliani. Quote, I understood, Sunland said in a revision to his deposition, that, that satisfying Mr. Giuliani was a condition for scheduling the White House visit. Visit, we should point out, that wouldn't have been just ceremonial. Ukraine has been fighting Russian-backed forces now for five years. It's trench warfare in Ukraine, signaling American support for Ukraine is vital to Kiev, and President Trump knows it. Back now with Dana Bash, Jeff Tubin, and David Axelrod. Uh, David, I mean, satisfying Mr. Giuliani, that is the, I mean, what that took to satisfy wasn't a giant anti-corruption drive on Ukrainian officials that Giuliani's never heard of. It was going after the Bidens and it yeah. was... Nor is Giuliani a diplomat and right. really isn't an agent of American foreign policy. He was on a political mission and that political mission was to uh, try and uh, get back up for some of the, for the 2016 kind of conspiracy theory about Ukraine and that election and to dirty up uh, Biden. And we should point out that Republicans, particularly when this whole caper started, uh, were deeply, deeply worried about Joe Biden. They still, I mean, there was a poll today that had him 17 points ahead of Donald Trump. So, so the, scuffing up Biden was a major mm -hmm. item and sending Rudy Giuliani as his uh, political agent gave him some insulation. He didn't want the diplomats to handle this. This was a political job. Dana, the former U.S. Special Envoy, uh, Kurt Volker, mm -hmm. in his testimony says he was not aware of any quid pro quo. The White House is kind of clinging on to that today. Uh, it doesn't mean that there wasn't one. Right. It doesn't mean that there wasn't one. And, and that's really the key, the key here. Um, they'll cling on to what they can find. I mean, if you actually look through Volcker and the transcript, he, he did kind of give something for everybody. Um, I thought one of the things that, uh, that, that Democrats can and should point to just on the political level is that he makes very clear he sees no evidence in any of the conspiracy theories that Rudy Giuliani was pushing, uh, just on the on the just basic facts of it about Joe Biden, that what what the, the suggestion that Joe Biden, you know, tried to get somebody fired, that Hunter Biden, uh, you know, benefited all of those things. He says flatly in, in, in this interview under questioning from Republicans. That's not true. It didn't happen. And then goes on to say not just that, but this the the uh, the goal of trying to push that instead of trying to 
helped the bilateral uh, relationship uh, flourish was really, really detrimental to national security. Jeff, you know, the uh, the idea that there has to be somebody um, who testifies that the president said, hold up the aid because I want to get dirt on the Bidens and I want them to investigate this, uh, you know, this the server thing is a I mean, is that true? You know, in order to build a case where obviously this is not a legal case, it's a it's a political uh, it's a political issue at this point. I, I think you, you just answered the question. I mean, this is, you know, if you are a Republican who is looking for a reason to uh, either vote against impeachment or vote against conviction, you can find one. Right. You can say there's not enough evidence against the president, that, that you only have secondhand people saying that there was a quid pro quo. You can say um, that this is not important enough, that this was within the realm of a president's authority and we don't overturn elections in light of it. Um, you can say any of those things and vote no. But I mean, was there a quid pro quo here? I don't think you can seriously entertain looking at the evidence we've seen. And by the way, we are going to see several of these people testify live and in person before the Intelligence Committee, which is likely to have probably more of a political impact than just a bunch of nerds like us who sat around reading this all day. uh, I mean, that I think is is likely to, if anything is going to change minds, that's going to be it. Yeah, uh, we've got to take a break. Uh, Dan of Jeff Tubin, David Axelrod, thank you. Coming up next, all eyes on Kentucky right now, the governor's race. Uh, we're going to revisit uh, that in just a moment. It is uh, very close to an upset. We'll bring you a live update ahead. We're watching some potentially big election night news unfold right now in front of us. It's happening in Kentucky. John King's been watching the vote totals grow and with them a possible defeat for the Republican incumbent, the governor. John, uh, what's the latest in the numbers? Anderson, this is a very close race, and you have the Democrat, Andy Beshear, leading right now by just shy of 22,000 votes. 92% of the vote counted. The Republican incumbent, Matt Bevin, at 48%. He is trailing in a race that has been very closely contested, very nasty and personal, and has now the presidential involvement because President Trump went and visited just last night, a state the president carried easily. In 2016, let's go back and take a look at that. If you go back to the presidential race and look at the state of Kentucky, it was a blowout, right? So this is Trump country. If you go back to 2015, when Matt Bevin was first elected governor, he won in a more competitive race, but still almost 10 points there, eight, nine point margin there. And so what is happening tonight? Watch the blue on the map here as we come in. Number one, here in Jefferson County, Louisville and the close in suburbs, Andy Beshear running it up running it up significantly, uh, close to 100,000 vote margin there. That This is the cushion, if you will. This is what brought him back when he was trailing when these votes came in. And again, it's a pattern we have seen in recent elections. Urban areas, close in suburbs, the Democrats winning and winning big. You find it the same when you come over here to Fayette County, Lexington, the suburbs around Lexington. Look at the margin for Andy Beshear. 100% of the vote counted here. But look at that tonight, 65-33. Just go back in time. Yes, the Democrat won this area four years ago, but the margin much greater tonight. Again, more Democratic strength in the city's turnout and in the suburbs as well. Pop it out just a little bit more. I want to show you, we showed you this a little bit earlier. You come up here, the Covington, Kentucky area, which is Campbell County, Cincinnati, Ohio is right here. These are the suburbs of Cincinnati, Ohio. Andy Beshear winning this suburban area there, an eight-point lead there. Go back in time. Matt Bevin won it by a significant margin just four years ago. So more proof of the suburban shift, the suburban run, if you will, away from the Republican Party in the Trump era. It's not all Trump. Matt Bevin has been a a very polarizing, controversial governor. 
Andy Beshear is the state attorney general. He's the son of the last Democratic governor, so the name is well known. We will focus on the urban areas and the close-in suburbs. Anderson, I just want to point this out as well. Because the Beshear name is well known, look at these rural areas out here. You see the blue out here? You see the blue here? You watch this play out here? Most of this, the vote count comes from these urban and suburban areas. But Andy Beshear is in play to possibly have a big upset here in Kentucky. If you go back in time, a lot more red in this area four years ago, a lot more blue tonight. Andy Beshear running stronger in some of these smaller rural counties that have drifted to the Republicans. So he's making the gains in the cities and the suburbs that we have seen Democrats make in other states. And he's also running very strong in these rural areas, helping him. Right now, we're up to 93 percent. And the Democrats on the verge. We're not there yet. We're still counting votes, but on the verge of in play for a major upset. All right, John King, stay with us. We want to bring in our political team. David Axelrod is, uh, is back, joining us as well. CNN political director David Chalian, USA Today, uh, USA Today columnist Kirsten Powers, and former RNC chief of staff Mike Shields. Uh, David Axelrod, let's start with you. How significant is this if, in fact, uh, it continues in this way? In well, it is significant. I mean, with all the disclaimers that John just offered about how unpopular Bevin was. Why was uh, he so unpopular? He's, a, he's an abrasive figure. He had uh, controversies with the teachers. He had controversies over uh, over Medicaid there. Uh, but fundamentally, he's a disagreeable uh, character, and that has dogged him uh, throughout. But, you know, he won by almost nine points last time. He, you know, he, he clearly is struggling here. And the president of the United States went there last night and would not have gone there if he thought that he was going to lose. They were looking forward to these races to jumpstart, uh, to to signify that he still has, uh, you know, strength, that he still has momentum. But what it is doing is underscoring things that are concerning, and particularly this drift away from Republicans and him in the suburbs. And that's something that uh, we're going to have to watch. The other person who's going to be watching, this is Mitch McConnell, Mm. who's up for re-election next year. Now, with Trump on the ballot, you would think that he would be fine. And Donald Trump's not going to lose the state of Kentucky. But you can see the disquiet that's out there. And if you extrapolate to other battleground states, this is a big concern. David Jallian, what stands out to you right now? Yeah, well, a lot, what David was saying is, is certainly true. I mean, uh, John was comparing it to how Bevin performed in those suburban counties four years ago, Anderson. In those areas around uh, Cincinnati, Donald Trump won those counties uh, by 24, 26 points uh, that Bashir is winning now. Now, two things. It, it is true. Bashir is a certain kind of Democrat uh, who can do this in Kentucky. So I do think it will launch, should he win tonight, some, conversa- some conversations about what kind of Democrat Democrat can indeed extenuate these advances that Democrats are making in suburbs and maybe also dig into some rural areas or deal with some more conservative and moderate voters. That'll be a conversation around sort of how a Democrat can make inroads in Trump country. That's one. But two, no matter how much Republicans will try to distance Bevin as his own guy, David called him a disagreeable fellow. He has certainly got uh, that issue. He has not been wildly popular. He challenged Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, remember? So uh, this is not your uh, most idealized Republican, no doubt about that. Uh, He's not doing as well as the other Republicans are on the ballot. But I would just note, as much as Republicans may try to separate him out and say this is a Bevin thing, I, I think you cannot lose sight of Donald Trump going in there at the end. We've seen him do this in other areas where it really has juice turnout. And if he was not able to do that here, even yeah. for an un, unpopular Republican, that is going to be a question mark that hangs around his head. Kirsten, how do, how do you see this? Yeah, well, I, I think that last point that David was just making, which is that Donald Trump 
for, you know, Bevin closely aligned himself with, with Donald Trump. There was no question he was looking for the president to pull him, you know, over the finish line. And Donald Trump went down there and made it very clear that he was behind him. I also think this is they, they were running on impeachment as well. You had Republicans running uh, ads against the Democrat, basically tying him to the impeachment process. And so this is sort of the first referendum we're seeing of how people are going to respond to the idea. Will it uh, get Donald Trump's voters excited enough to, to turn out. And, and if they don't, then I think that that's a data point uh, for the Republicans and for the Democrats. Mike Shields, how do you see this as a, as a Republican? Well, first of all, full disclosure, my firm did some work on this campaign, and so I have a, a unique insight to this. Uh, Bevin started down double figures. Uh, he, w- he w- did have a huge popularity problem in this race. And on the same ticket as him, uh, Daniel Cameron is winning the attorney general's race by 20 points. So you have a lot of Bashir Cameron voters. He is, by the way, a very promising young African-American attorney general who was, an, who was a, a protege of, of uh, Mitch McConnell. So Mitch McConnell's actually having a great night because people see him as the successor to Mitch in the future if his career keeps going the way that it does. So Republicans in the state of Kentucky are actually doing pretty well. Bevin is not doing well. And I think if Democrats think they want to extrapolate something from this, look at the way that Andy Bashir ran his campaign and look at how the Democrats who are running for president are talking. They're not even remotely in the same party. This is like Connor Lamb winning a special election by sh- shooting an AK-47 and talking about how he didn't like Nancy Pelosi who's pro-life in Pennsylvania. The, the kind of Democrat that can win in Kentucky, what they need is an extremely unpopular governor who's down by yeah. double digits, and they need someone like Andy Bashir. And that's just not who the Democrats are right now, and it's none of their presidential candidates. Yeah, I, I just want to check in with John just uh, as he's following the, uh, the vote count. John? Anderson, Anderson, we're up to 95% now, and the lead, it was 21,000, I think, last time we talked. It's down to about 12,000 now. So, again, this is nail-biting time in any campaign headquarters when you go through a close one, no matter where, no matter where you are. So you're looking at the gray, the gray areas on the map here. And if you look at them, all of these gray areas, this is where we don't have votes yet. These are small rural counties. Uh, there's not a lot of people in these counties. The question is, are there enough? All of these counties that you see with no red or blue, the gray no votes yet. All of them went for Bevin. All of them are Republican rural counties. Now, Andy Beshear is doing better in a lot of these counties, even if he's losing, uh, than the Democrat four years ago, to the Mike Shields point he just made. But so here you are at 95%. You're at 12,000 votes. Uh, the question is, how much does Bevin win, assuming he wins all these rural counties? How many people turn out? What's the margin there? Are there enough votes? The only thing we're really waiting for on the Democratic side for more potentially decent amount of votes is you still only have 96 percent in Jefferson County. So you have some late precincts coming in there and you see the margin. So Andy Beshear can count on some more votes there. When you go to the other areas of the map that are blue, you're just seeing here Franklin County, where Frankfurt is 100 percent reporting. You move over here to Scott County, 100 percent reporting. You pop down to Fayette County, which is a major population center, Lexington and the suburbs here, 100 percent. So uh, now you're in nail-biting town. You're counting the final precincts, but the lead just shy of 13,000 votes. Uh, the Democrats think they're within striking distance of pulling this one out. All right. We'll see where the numbers go. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. More updates when we come back. As you can see by the totals there on the screen, 96 percent. We're waiting for some of the very uh, last votes to be counted in Kentucky, where Democrat Andy Bashir is holding a very narrow lead in the race for governor, about 11,000 votes uh, right now. President Trump campaigned in Lexington for the incumbent governor uh, just last night. Certainly not just a referendum on the president, but the shifting vote in suburban areas might say something about his shifting appeal there. Back now with the team, starting with John King. John? 
And Anderson, right now, Matt Bevan is hoping and hoping and hoping that these counties in western Kentucky, rural areas that he won last time four years ago, uh, not only come in red when the votes come in, but come in red by convincing margins. And I say that, you start to see uh, some of them right in here. Hart County, we have nothing in so far. I just want to go back in time. It's a pretty small County. You see the vote totals last time. He won with 57 plus percent of the vote. The question is, can he run up a percentage like that and also run up the numbers? Because that would get you a net gain of about 800 votes if he repeated four years ago. Uh, 800 votes is not going to do it if he's going to try to make up what is now an 11,000 vote deficit here. But I just want to show you a couple of places we're waiting on. You come over here along uh, McCracken County here in the western part of the state. You see it here. Matt Bevan, the Republican incumbent, winning this county by almost 10 points. So the question is, with 75 percent in, What's left? And does he keep that margin? And again, is it enough? This is its frustrating time. Uh, Mr. Axelrod, Mr. Shields have both been through this in campaign headquarters on the close ones. You call in all your local precinct captains. You're saying, what do we know? How many people voted? You're trying to figure out when this small county comes in, for example. If you go back four years ago, uh, Matt Bevan won it, won it pretty convincingly. But again, you see here. That's 2,400 votes combined there. Sorry, I get close to the map sometimes and you get sensitive. You pull it back out now. Just want to come back in here as we come into the race. This is back in time. Let's come back to where we are now. 96 percent, 11,000 votes. The question is in these small rural counties, both the ones where we have no votes yet and the ones where we're still waiting for the count to be finished. Again, Livingston County, 82 percent in. Again, that's a big margin for Matt Bevan. The question always is, when the rest of the people vote, how much more can you get? 728 to 1,300. But when you've got eight or 10 little counties like this out, the math is possible. It gets very hard. He essentially has to thread the needle with the rest of the vote coming in. But this is a red area of the state. That's where the outstanding vote is. We're going to wait. I just want to check one more time. If you're in Democratic Party headquarters, you also think you got a little bit more coming in in Jefferson County. It's the last of the big, reliable Democratic areas, not at 100 percent, but a little bit more likely coming in for Andy Bashir here. And again, this is brew the coffee, wait it out <laughs> and count them time. All right. We're going to be doing that, obviously, uh, all night long on CNN. Uh, we continue to monitor what's happening in Kentucky. There are other races we're following. We'll be right back. It is a very busy election night. CNN's going to be watching it all this uh, all this evening. Let's uh, check in with Chris, see what he's working on. Chris. And a fascination, my friend, about why this Andy Bashir Matt Bevin race matters. Uh, and, you know, context is going to provide some clues Kentucky, obviously, a state that the president won in huge fashion. Matt Bevan did not. Uh, the president did go down there and, uh, you know, just this past week and said Bevan is the man. But he had popularity problems in that state that wasn't so much a function of personal foibles as it was missteps on issues that matter, specifically Medicaid. And that may be a boring subject for people, but it isn't when you live in hand to mouth. Uh, and you need that kind of government service. Andy Bashir supposedly or reportedly went to the counties that Trump won most in rural areas of Kentucky and said in less than five minutes, here's what I'll do for you. So he kind of pulled a Beto coop. You know what I mean? He went everywhere. And I know Beto's out of the race now, but that worked well for him in Texas in a race that shouldn't have been close for him with Cruz. So Bashir did that. The question becomes, what does it mean for Democrats? Is Bashir a reflection or is he different than the national picture. Yeah, we'll take a look at that. Chris, uh, see you about uh, six minutes from now. Up next, the latest results in the Kentucky race. The race for governor in uh, Kentucky is very close. 99% of the vote now in. Democrat Andy Bashir holding a narrow lead there, about uh, 10,500 or so. 
uh, over the Republican incumbent, Matt Bevin, just about uh, 10,000 votes, as I said, President Trump campaigned for him just last night. Sure to be watching these returns closely. The state has seen the cities go blue, which is not unexpected. But in a shift from the last election, key suburbs have seen a substantial move away from the Republican candidate. That, of course, might have national implications for Republicans uh, next year. Of course, the kind of candidate that uh, Bashir is is also something that's going to be Bashir is also something that's going to be closely watched. As are statewide races in Virginia, where special attention is being paid to the state Senate there in Virginia. It's now narrowly in Republican control. That, too, could change overnight. Races in Mississippi as well. We'll get uh, the returns throughout the evening. Of course, CNN's going to bring it to you all as it happens. Time to hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Chris?